Thanks for listening to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and the abolition movement. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Namsanenstein, and today I'm back with another episode in our Creative Intervention series, where we explore this fantastic and practical toolkit for stopping interpersonal violence and speak with some of the people whose organizing efforts directly informed it. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, pause this episode and go listen to the first one we published in this series where we spoke with Mimi Kim and Rachel Herzing about what the Creative Interventions Toolkit is, where it came from, and how it differs from other approaches to intervening in violence and harm. Before I tell you about what we have in store today, a humble request. If you like the work we do at Beyond Prisons, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation of any amount at beyond-prisons.com donate. Your donations help us keep the show going and support all of the work involved in creating these episodes, from booking to developing questions to interviewing, editing, paying for the podcast and web services, all of it. If this show has been important to you over the years, please consider giving back with a contribution. Those donations are what keeps this show on the air. I'm speaking with Mimi and Shira Hassan once again, this time with reflections, observations, and other notes for people who are considering interventions. If you've got the toolkit at home, which you can purchase from AK Press or access for free at creative-interventions.org, we're touching on some of the topics in section 2.3, which is entitled Violence Intervention, Some Important Lessons, and begins on page 93 of the toolkit. There's a lot more in this section than we get to in this episode, so I highly suggest checking it out. In this conversation, Shira and Mimi answer some broad questions about common challenges with interventions. What can happen when people are asked to take accountability? What are the pros and cons of an intervention involving people that you know or may be close to? How long should an intervention last or should it be ongoing? And a lot more. The release of this episode coincides with the publication of a new workbook companion for the CI Toolkit, which features useful and practical worksheets and tools. The CI workbook was just released through AK Press. A Google Doc version of the workbook, which you can use to adapt to your own situation of harm, is available for free at creative-interventions.org. You can find links to further resources in the episode notes, including Shira's amazing new anthology, Saving Our Own Lives, a liberatory practice of harm reduction, which is now available from Haymarket Books. I highly recommend you check that out and support Shira's work however you can. Shira Hassan has trained and spoken nationally on the sex trade, harm reduction, self-injury, healing justice, and transformative justice. Currently working as a fellow at Interrupting Criminalization, Shira runs the Help Desk. The Help Desk offers supportive thought partnership to individuals and groups working to interrupt crises and violence without using the police. Along with Mariam Kaba, she is the co-author of Fumbling Towards Repair, a workbook for community accountability facilitators, and the author of Saving Our Own Lives, a liberatory practice of harm reduction. Mimi Kim is the founder of Creative Interventions and a co-founder of Insight. She has been a longtime activist, advocate, and researcher challenging gender-based violence at its intersection with state violence and creating community accountability, transformative justice, and other community-based alternatives to criminalization. As a second-generation Korean-American, she locates her political work in global solidarity with feminist, anti-imperialist struggles, seeking not only the end of oppression, but the creation of liberation here and now. Her recent publications include 2020's The Carceral Creep, 
and 2018's From Carceral Feminism to Transformative Justice. She's currently working on The Chat Project, a non-law enforcement restorative justice project addressing domestic and sexual violence in Contra Costa County, California. Mimi and Shira are also partnering on a reboot of the Storytelling and Organizing Project, or STOP, featuring stories of everyday people creatively and collectively ending violence. Stay tuned. All right, that's it for now. You can find links to the CI website and toolkit, as well as other resources in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening, and here is my conversation with Mimi Kim and Shira Hassan. I wanted to ask about what you all have seen when you're asking somebody to take accountability uh, for something. You know, what kinds of typical reactions do people have to that? What are some common ways that people try to avoid taking accountability? You know, I guess I just want to pan back for a second on this question. I think we live in a culture that has conditioned us to not be accountable. Being quote unquote accountable is terrifying in the culture that we live in. It, we've been trained to lie. We've been trained to deny. And we actually believe that accountability is punishment and that we can't, and, and many of us have even experienced that, you know, the myth that the person who caused harm is not often is not generally a survivor is really super damaging to even how we think about what accountability is to begin with because so many of us have been trained since children that being accountable means violence it means punishment and then we live in a system that replicates that and trains us to deny as part of the way we have to live and survive in the police model that we live in. And I think it isn't so much that I've seen, um, what I see is that people don't know how to do it differently in the conditions that we're in because so many times no one is really given the opportunity, given the chance, to say, I did this thing, what what does it mean, right? Like, what now? I think most of us who've caused harm, and I'm saying us because I think there's an us-them in this that is harmful, right? Like, I think we really need to broaden our understanding of who causes harm because most of the time people who cause harm are survivors themselves of violence and so i'm always trying to like remind us that this is a survivor-led movement not only because of the people who are surviving violence taking leadership but also because the people who are causing harm need a space to be seen as as like in in context of the overall experience of what it means to live in rape culture and i think to your previous question you know who is harmed i think we forget that one of the biggest impacts of living in rape culture living in a culture that 
um, has so much intimate partner violence, domestic violence, relationship violence in it, is that we're terrified of being accountable. And so almost every process I've ever done, the, the, the belief is that the person should apologize right away, make a statement right away, and that they should be willing to say right away they did this thing and they're accountable. And actually, if that were the case, we wouldn't necessarily need a process. Like almost every single process I've been a part of, the person does not necessarily start out understanding the harm that they cause. That is part of the work of the people who are holding the process to help someone see that they've caused this harm and then sit with the grief and impact of what it means to have done that, especially in the face of probably having experienced some kind of harm in your own life. And that is so, so powerful and challenging and sad and difficult that of course, what people want to do first is think that they didn't do it, clear their name, move away from the idea of it ever having happened in the first place. Um, but, you know, I think part of our work is actually helping people come into the realization that they did this and then sit with the impact and think through how to make some kind of repair. Thank you, Cher. That was such you know, on point um, to also what I have seen um, with accountability, just to talk about um, the kind of culture and society that we live in and how we have been so geared towards punishment and shame um, that it is hard for people to imagine a kind of situation in which just admitting that you had caused violence, um, talking about the actual impact of that violence is so unthinkable, so terrifying in terms of what you might lose, um, that, that that is not the go-to place. Um, so every kind of uh, denying, minimizing uh, of violence, um, blaming the survivor for doing something or causing something or creating conditions where they just couldn't help but be violent and people be very sympathetic to that. Um, and then blaming those people who are creating a, a community accountability kind of process for making it worse. That's really common, um, very, very common. So we, we see all kinds of things. Um, there, I think it's, in my experience, a little more rare that somebody might actually um, acknowledge that there is violence, but that doesn't mean that that acknowledgement sticks. That uh, I, I think that for, for all the reasons that Cheryl already um, alluded to, that that can change so quickly. Um, you know, I'm willing to admit it, but now you want me to do all of these other things because of that. Oh, right. Okay. And the story changes. Um, uh, I think that uh, the concept, and I don't know who came up with this, and maybe you know, Shira, but 
uh, I've heard API China talk about this a lot. I think it's folks in Seattle. And I might have the numbers wrong, but something like 60 to 1,000, something like that, where you also will see people that will um, be over, overly come like, I'm so sorry, and, and go so um, overboard with it that that's also a way in which some people have started understanding a way that people are not taking accountability, but looking like they're taking like ultra accountability. I think that's a really interesting concept because um, I have seen that happen. And to name that as a, also a way of not being accountable, I think has been interesting and um, really useful in looking at the different ways that, you know, it can be very confusing because it looks like people are taking accountability, um, but they're not. Um, I just think that what's really important about the work that we're doing and that we're creating and the fumbling towards, as the tool, toolkit says, um, is that trying to create conditions in which people can actually expect that taking accountability as much as it's difficult and, and as much time as it might take, that that is actually in their interest in the long run, that it actually will benefit people to be accountable. And, you know, and I think that a lot of what we continue to work towards and think about is how we can talk about transformative justice more as a general kind of politic and way we want to be in the world where any one of us has created harm in some ways and that we can all be accountable and that we have these richer, um, more social justice aligned ways of thinking about what that means and making that more of a general practice that all of us can do. And that, you know, we can start with small things, but also including the large, very, very large types of um, harm that some people have created and caused that we can actually hold that. We can hold that in a process where people have the opportunity and can develop the skills and can have the support to actually move towards, um, you know, we, we looked at it as steps or phases, but people can think about it different ways, you know, that you can actually acknowledge what you did. You can actually look at look at the impacts of that harm or those patterns of harm, um, even if you didn't intend them. And so some people will say, well, I didn't mean to. Okay, that might be true, but you need to look at all the levels of impact that that has had, you know, including your own mind. Um, I think that's another important part of accountability. Um, I think in really trying to support people to have the skills, the ability to then um, not only acknowledge that, but to to make repair for that. And that can look a lot of different ways. I'm sure, you know, you mentioned apology, and I know a lot of people want that as part of it, but what are the other things that you do in terms of changing your life around, in, in, in terms of um, recognizing the conditions under which you are more likely to cause harm and in um, and doing prevention work or seeking support from other people. And then the responsibility for all of us to create more and more supportive structures to um, so that people can be accountable, in, not in a punitive way, but in a way that actually is aligned with the kind of world of liberation that we want to see. I think that's just the beautiful and exciting and maybe at times aspirational part of the work that we're doing around abolition and transformative justice. But we see more and more that people are 
trying to live into and lean into that way of thinking about the possibilities of ourselves and our world and moving towards that. And, uh, you know, you're falling short. I think that is part of the reason why we have people that don't feel like it's worth it for them to be accountable. I don't even know what it means or just assume that it's going to be um, punishment so they don't want to do it. Um, but those things are, are slowly shifting. And I just feel like, you know, I want to really thank the work of Just Practice, Yushira, and um, so many other people in our, in our collective community who have really been moving that forward in such beautiful ways. So I wanted to jump to, to one of the other questions I had here was that, you know, there is a part in, in the toolkit where it says, you know, there's often nothing we can do to quote unquote, make up for the original harm. And I was just wondering if, if either of you had anything to say on this perspective and uh, that, that hasn't been said already, you know, about the purpose of these interventions and, and where you might end up, or if there even is an end state, if we should be working for an end state instead of something that's more living uh, in our, in our relationships. I think whether this is an end state or not is so deeply personal and, um, and situational. I mean, I think there are people who feel like whatever process they went through, and it might not have been a community accountability process, um, feels, might feel like an end state, but for so many people, it's not. Um, and I think a lot of what we've done when we started creative interventions and our sort of our viewpoint going in is, for example, that this is not necessarily about healing because somebody may not have that as their goal, or they might see that as their goal, but outside of the space of a community accountability process. That might be something that's deeply spiritual to them, something they do outside. Do they have some relationship? Probably. But um, I didn't feel, and I know Rachel and I, when we were talking about this early on, didn't feel like that was something for us to have as um, a presumed goal. Um, I think that what I saw over time when I was starting to do this work in a more concentrated kind of way was an understanding that there were some of the reasons why the process was so challenging and so emotional I think for some people, and I can think of that as myself in my own experiences, personal experiences of harm, you just, you wish they would go, you wish it never had happened. You wish they would go away. And sometimes you want a process or you want accountability taken by that person and maybe the whole community or a group of people that can somehow erase that. I don't think that's for everybody, but I, again, I think I can look at this in a personal way too. Um, you just wish it never happened. And that at some point that maybe it was important to say that that was noted, um, that, that it might be something that people need to reckon with in, in their own way, that that is a understandable desire. And it may be something that you cannot reach through any kind of process you might have, but it might just be part of the whatever you want to call it, if it's reckoning, if it's healing, however you want to think about it, um, that is part of this. And it might help other people who might be involved in processes and understanding that is a common, not uncommon kind of desire. Um, so we put that directly into words to 
um, just to to share with people that that seemed to be something and you know something that I can relate to personally. I think, you know, I, the reason for my like long pause is not, is like, I, you know, I wish it was only to be dramatic, but it's because healing is so complicated and so individual. And I think one of the things that I've always tried to, um, stay complicated about is that forgiveness is not something that everyone wants or needs healing is this i i think you know I'll, i guess i'll just speak for myself personally rather than um trying to be general because i think it is so difficult to be general about what healing is and looks like in the face of some of the most extreme violence that humans experience and i think one thing i've been amazed by is the amount of time in my life i've spent thinking through what healing looks like for me at any given stage of my life and I think that with processes in particular, my only goal, and I think we've said this at just practice, and we may have said it in the uh, workbook, uh, Fumbling Towards Repair as well, is like the only thing we can do is hope to give people a start to their healing work at any point that they are thinking that healing is possible for them both as the person who caused harm and as the person who has experienced it, both of those roads are so long, you know, and I'm not trying to like um, discourage people from doing it. I think I'm often like a little irreverent when it comes to healing because I think we have this, um, this sort of like idea of it as this happy, safe, purple place. Meanwhile, I'm like healing sucks. Like if I could get out of healing work, right. I would buy myself a pass tomorrow. Like what is the ticket out of this joint? And I've tried so hard to avoid it. You know, I've done so much to not heal. At the same time, all the things I was doing, I guess, quote unquote, to not heal, we're also healing me because sometimes we need time, we need space, we need dissociation, we need all of our skills and strategies and tools to turn off as much as we do to turn on and, and to get into the work. So I guess I just want to say to your question, first of all, a process should be time limited. It should not go on forever. Secondly, I think the most we can ever hope to gain, both as the person who caused harm and as the person who survived, um, that experience that we're creating a process around is the beginning, like laying a strong, powerful foundation so that people can experience a holding and a real, true, intentional space where we know that transformation is possible on both a 
individual level and hopefully a systemic one. I think that's part of why we're talking about community accountability and transformative justice as opposed to restorative justice. Restorative justice is more right. individual, whereas community accountability and transformative justice not only addresses the harm between two people, but also the conditions that allowed it to be possible. So I think some of that is also healing. I know so many people, whether they've used the criminal punishment system um, because they were forced to, or whether they've been um, a target of the criminal punishment system. And I've known people who've used community accountability practices and who've had really successful processes. And they would both say the same thing, like it's so long and painful um, to do this work. And of course we wish we could figure out how to restore to a place where it never happened. Of course we do. And I think it's just really critical to acknowledge that yes, healing is possible. Yes, healing is nonlinear. Yes, healing takes a really long time. And everyone involved also in terms of a process, a process is not gonna see you all the way through that time because it could be your it could be so long, a process is gonna hopefully lay a foundation for really good transformational work to happen because it was contained, it was held, it was nurtured, it was supported, it was acknowledged, it wasn't ignored, tools were given, resources were given. And then, you know, there's some work that of course cannot be done inside of a process because this work is lifelong, recovery is lifelong. And I, I hope that doesn't sound too depressing, but it's I've been amazed in my life by how much time and attention it does take to recover, which is why so many people don't do it, you know, um, because it is, it is so much work to heal. No, I really, I really appreciate that answer, both of those answers. Um, I think you're absolutely right. And sure, I wanted to pick up on one thing you were talking about a little bit there and see if maybe you could expand on it. You, you commented there that, you know, a process should be time limited. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that or, or share your thoughts on, on the issue of time, I guess, uh, in this? Oh, absolutely. I think um, there's actually a great example of this in um, Creative Intervention's other project called STOP, which is um, an amazing resource that you can find online. Um, and it has lots of different examples of stories from all over the world of people who've tried um, community accountability processes and strategies and how it went so that we can learn from um, su successful examples. And I think there's a couple of stories on there that really speak to how important it is for um, people who are involved in a process to understand its scope and scale. Um, because I think that um, we start, we can easily start to replicate the criminal punishment system if, when, if we think that we can like ban people permanently from spaces or we think that we can, um, you know, follow people around for the rest of their lives to make sure that they don't 
prevent or to to make sure that they don't harm anyone else again, which like we can't participate in that level of surveillance. Um, even if even if we thought it was the right thing to do, it 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 how does how do we do that as individuals? Like we can't. That's not something we're we're trying to replicate. Um, and so you know I think we have to name a beginning, middle, and end of a process so that the survivor knows what to expect and can move on with their life and so that the person who caused harm knows what's expected of them so that they can begin to plan not only for their long-term um, process of recovery from the harm that they've caused, because to be honest with you, the more accountable someone is, the longer the process will take because self account like being accountable is an active process. Punishment is passive, right? That's part of the confusion. People think punishment changes someone and 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 we certainly know it does. It's just not for the better. It you know, violence does not bring healing in that way. So I think um the more accountable someone wants to be, the more lifelong the struggle with the harm they cause will be for them. And so the person who caused harm also needs to know how long they can count on these particular resources, the resources of this pod that's come together or this accountability group committee that's formed. How long can they count on this circle? Because the more accountable they will, which is, you know, part of what we hope will happen, uh, the more accountable they will become, which is part of what we hope will happen, the, the longer their process will take. But the resources of the community may not can't can't be lifelong like we we don't have those kind of finite tools and skills which is why by the way another piece of this that's so important is that both of our workbooks focus do not focus on bystander interventions they focus on interventions within the communities in part because not only is the length and depth of relationship that's required to really get into how intense these levels of harm can be, but also because of how long it takes to do the work and recover. And we need to be able to like build on and pull resources. We may need to involve people's parents and sisters and mothers, and um, we may want to involve people's chosen family. We may want to. Um, you know, be really actively involved in someone's life for a while. And we can't do that with strangers in the same way. There's great work on stranger intervention and bystander intervention. So this isn't a diss to that work, quite the opposite. It's like an acknowledgement that the work is just complicated and different um, than than each other. And so part of that is because of the time that it takes. Section two is has basics. It has basics about interpersonal violence, but also has basics about intervention. Um, to remind people, many of these things were written at an earlier period, and you know we're so fortunate that AK Press uh, agreed to put this out in writing at this point, and that people can, you know, I, I can see how much more accessible. You know, I'm thinking a free PDF is very accessible, but there's a way in which having it available in book form has really increase the access. So, you know, that was really lovely to see this come about. But uh, um, some of those 
basics around what you might expect from interventions or what you don't even realize you're thinking, which is including, I think, that quote that you said about realizing that some people just wish it never happened. And that is not only the survivor, but it could be the person who caused harm. I wish I would never have done that. It may be the family members, the community that says, why, I wish this had never happened. It caused so much pain. Or I wish this never happened because then I wouldn't have to be sitting here in this process, which I actually don't want to be part of anymore. It's valid. Um, so I think this whole round, it does take time. You don't want it so long that it's, you know, much of this happens outside of a process and it may be lifelong. So, you know, really appreciate Shira raising all those points around time. I think one of the things, another basic that probably came out of this, in looking at this in the in the last few years really is that not everything is a community accountability process, that sometimes we are trying to do something that just needs to be rapid response because there is an immediate need for something to be done. And there are things that can be done immediately. And so we don't want to set everything up for a process that might, one, might, might not be appropriate, might not be doable, and may just take too long given the immediate need that's out there. So how is it that we then at least use the frameworks and kind of our knowledge and some of the values that we have around abolition and transformative justice to do something that's shorter. And that might look more like, like a, a rapid response because some people just need a rapid response that is collective, that is not gonna engage systems or social services because you don't believe in them because they're gonna make things worse, because they're not available they would never come out in the first place. Um, you know, all of the different, many, many, many multiple reasons why you wouldn't. Um, and I think that this toolkit can give, um, can give um, knowledge and, and tools to help with that process. But I, I have found it useful just for myself to distinguish between the times in which we, hey, we're doing a rapid response, but it's not necessarily a process. And oh, we have conditions where a process might be possible. Let's see how we can put them together. So um, that's something that is not, was not stated in the toolkit. I think it's in the workbook that's going to be coming out because it seemed important to distinguish. And I think it's also something that I raised um, in the mixtape. We're all like producing many things. So um, Just Practice put out that really incredible mixtape series um, that's, forever available and, and if you don't have it right now, I think you should pull your money together and um, and have access to that because uh, there's just a lot of really important things that people shared in those more like more webinar type formats that, um, that are really important. And I, that is one of the things that I know that I highlighted in that mixtape series that just I just didn't quite understand at the time when we were doing creative interventions. What are some of the challenges that come from uh, knowing the people involved? You know, obviously it can, it can help in the ways that you sort of gestured at when you're talking about um, the difference between a, a stranger and a bystander intervention, but 
you know, are there ways that you've seen it be an obstacle or a complicating factor that you've had to work through? I mean, I think what I was thinking about is I feel like it's a, it's a, it's one of those ones that's like, it is, it's almost like a trick question in a way, because it's, I know, I know that's not what you meant, but. but I swear I'm not trying to trick you. I know, I know, but it almost is in a way because the whole that's what this whole body of work is it's about navigating the complexity of relationship when harm happens and so it's hard to like distill it i think like you know things that come up over time i things that come up you know invariably i guess um are gonna be that when it's your people you want to really work hard and so like when it's a job you there you know a lot of us work in jobs we're passionate in or we work in jobs that are embedded in our communities also and so if you've had a job like that you know that it can be really difficult to you know make boundaries and and manage manage your time and so in a community accountability process i think you know that's a similar challenge is that like how do you say no or how do you limit the time because it's so important um to you personally politically um and in your community and so i think you know i think some of the things that facilitators struggle with are you know knowing too much like knowing so much about what's going on i think we we struggle with how to take care of ourselves in a process I, I think we struggle with that that so many of us are I and and actually everyone that I know who does this work is a survivor. And so then, you know, how it feels when someone you love is harmed or when someone you love causes harm and so you step in to, to hold a process like that's a that's a totally um it's so painful. And so I, I think like I think both of us have done so much to really think that part through that it's almost like it's almost challenging to just distill it into a list also because it it's going to be different depending on how you've designed your team and so um you know hopefully um some of the challenges we've we've talked about at length and then you'll find new ones that we haven't experienced because of the location that you're in when you try things. Um, I think too, like to, and this is sort of related, but sort of unrelated, is that I think, I think it makes us say yes to things because we want to jump in um, mm-hmm. and we want to stop the harm from happening, especially to people we love, especially if we know the person who's caused harm. And I think, so I think it's also just important, and I think Fumbling has this list, and I'm pretty sure Creative Interventions has this list too. There's lots of times, like Mimi just said, where you absolutely should not do a process. One of them is in crisis. A a crisis is the absolute worst time for a process. And so I think also being able to like assess um, what we can and can't do and knowing ourselves and knowing what is possible for us when things are too close. Um, they're all, I think, really big challenges to this. I, I think that question, what that question brings up is how um, these interventions 
if you want to call that, or processes are really informed by an organizing kind of approach. And that um, what some of the steps that you see in the toolkit or phases or tools are addressing things that come out of an organizing approach, which is one, you have people that have different roles. And so you may have a certain relationship or feeling that you have about the violence that make you feel less comfortable to take a certain role because you just know you're going to have too much emotion. And you're the one that you're just going to provide, hey, use my house and leave. Um, uh, you know, I'll make some tea, and but I can't be there. That is a very distinct and important role you can take that where you acknowledge I care about what happens, but I actually am too close to this or I have too much emotion invested. I don't think I'm going to be very helpful in this role. And, you know, that's just one. And I just want to show you, you know, just to say how like removed it can be. Right. Um, and, and I think that's part of what we try to do. And you'll see this in fumbling and you'll see this in the toolkit is some things around, am I going to be a good person to be part of this? And some self-evaluation questions that you have about the kind of person you are, the kind of relationship you have to this particular incident or to, to these particular people. And whether or not, and part of the thing I think about the tool is to, to help you identify that there are these kinds of things that can be really challenging. I mean, they can be ways in which you're a great person to be involved in doing X, Y, and Z, and a terrible person to do another set of things. But the thing is these, you know, if you're gonna be involved in um, a process, there are many, many different roles that are needed and that, can, that you can take part in. Maybe you're just gonna be a support person. Maybe you're gonna be, they call me when, you know, it's 3 a.m. and you just need to talk to somebody but I'm not gonna be involved in the intervention. I think the other thing about organizing is that you have to look at goals and that why well, everybody wants everything to get better and go away, but what you're willing to have as a bottom line can be really different and it's important to look at goals and to be honest about them and to see whether or not this is something you can be a part of and to be real about what those goals are. So there's a section like that and I think that's also informed by a kind of organizing approach. Uh, I think the other thing about organizing is that you can have a different entry point into this and different levels of experience, but that can you be more coordinated? People do often bring in other people and they're all telling them to do something absolutely opposite and different based upon their, you know, their best thought of what should be done, including, you know, the terrible advice people give, the harmful advice people give. So is there a way to think about people coming together and actually talking about this in a more organized way so that you're like you're more aware of where you're coming from you're actually getting information from somebody else that might help you and help the survivor and help the entire team come up with a strategy that makes more sense is there somebody really knows the person who caused harm really really well and intimately who is just the person to say i think they would respond to this and they probably would be really you know that this other way would be very hard for them all of this information together can actually then create the kinds of coordinated and hopefully supportive strategies that might lead to a good outcome. But it's not usually the way we think about violence. We either think of it as like, go in and rescue, don't do anything at all, have the cops come, um, 
everything but right and and yet we do have examples and these stories of people that just did this because that's what they realized they should do and other people that did this because they got a little information from somebody else who tried something and went, oh that makes sense um you know they they read fumbling they looked at the toolkit and it was helpful in some ways to give them information that they wouldn't have otherwise was there anything that we didn't cover any like uh advice or or maybe not advice but like lessons or things for people to look out for or you know another way to think about this is like sort of misconceptions that people might have about uh where using these tools or skills might be relevant and where they where they might not be um anything we didn't talk about today that you wanted to highlight that are transformations from harm um need to align with the ways the ways that lives unfold and that is mm -hmm. a slow way um we want immediate things that immediately work i wish but life that that's not the way we are as human beings are at this point um uh, our legacies of violence sadly are generations long and certainly lifetimes long uh, hopefully we are coming up with some wisdom in our community accountability transformative justice processes that can serve as a time limited um, coming together of people that can hasten a process of transformation but they still have to be aligned with the ways in which we live and lives unfold and the complexities of that and so i think we're doing something that's a balance of of long-term complicated legacies and can we do something that's better than that um, in the kinds of ways that we're trying to move towards social change and transformation and liberation i think that there's a really important activity to do with yourself as you begin to do you, to think through what your role is in community accountability. And I think there's sort of like the personal piece, which is, you know, thinking through your skills and resources, your strengths, where you know you belong in this work and where, what feels scary to you um, about this work, what you feel like is outside of your scope and like you don't have the skill set capacity or personality for i think we often think that we are supposed to do everything and i actually think what mimi said about here's my home and i'll make tea is like a really critical role and i think it's good to think about um how we can make best use of our offers and strengths in this moment. And then I think there's also the systems analysis around violence that I think we also have towards ending violence. I think some of the things that I've noticed and that I've personally paid a lot of attention to are like, what is the, the people who are really successful at holding process or doing community accountability and transformative work, what are the sort of like the X factors? What are the things that make it so difficult to teach? What are 
what are the belief systems that they have and i think what i've what i've noticed myself is that what is inside of community accountability and transformative justice as a belief system is is that it's made up of other practices and belief systems it's made up of the daily practice of liberatory harm reduction it's made up of a belief that prisons and police need to end and we have to um, turn away from state systems and towards each other it's a belief in healing justice the idea that we all have a right to heal on our own terms but that we also have to confront systemic systems right like not just about our individual right to heal it's also about how systems interrupt whole communities' ability to heal. And I also think it's about the sort of broader belief that trauma and survivorship have to be centered in the way that we work to end violence, especially in community accountability processes. And how that comes alive in processes is really important and integral to their success I think if you look around towards the anti-violence activists who are all powerful and brilliant queer and trans people of color and elders of color at this point who have made um, a legacy and taken such careful notes about what they've done that's worked and what they've done that hasn't worked as we invest in our own personal um recipe to what we are going to do interpersonally and systemically to end violence i've noticed those five things are the things that people are doing in a daily way um, to transform the root causes of how we got here to begin with and how we can help each other dig out you know another thing that we thought was important to put in the basics section was um that the work that we're doing sometimes goes is counter to our personal feelings about this. And that's the work of liberation. Um, so for example, one of the things that we, we wrote, I know that was maybe one of the first times this, this actually went in writing, sometimes we do not like the survivors. Some of you just, we don't, and we're supposed, or we feel like we're supposed to. Um, and that doesn't mean that you can't do a community accountability process. What that means is that you recognize that that can be um, a human feeling that you have about somebody. Maybe you have to think about whether or not you're the right person to be involved in um, a process because of that. Or maybe you just accept that that's the way you feel and it's okay. You could still, you still have the values. You still care enough about that person as a human being to actually do this, but I think being real with yourself about human feelings that might be surprising or that you wanna suppress because, oh, I shouldn't feel that way, was an important part of doing this work. You might actually like and feel more sympathy for the person who caused harm. They're more charming. You know them better. Um, and so again, that's something to weigh in um, and be real about. You may have feelings of violence. You, and I, I think we, we all do. Does that mean that you want a violent thing to happen? No, it's understanding that this is real. 
um, it's okay to feel that, but that do we have a politic and real understanding that the transformation of incredible pervasiveness of harm is not to, to act that way because that is what the criminal legal or criminal punishment system does, but that we actually do believe in doing something different and we're and what we want to do is uh, I'm not a good enough human being to do this on my own. So what we need to do is come up with a collective kind of approach and learning and practice that um, that does move towards the kinds of values that we actually hold. I think that's really an important part of this work and was one uh, I, I know was important for us to state in the basic section. I, I want to name um, Mimi that made me think about um, there's a way in which I have seen the culture that we're trying to create where no one is disposable, which I believe harm reduction teaches us how to practice, and that's in bolts of no one is disposable. But what harm reduction also gives us is boundaries. And I think I've seen survivors begin to get blamed um, for having boundaries and the confusion between boundaries and disposability. I think it's something that is really critical for you as the beginner to think through, like what is, where is this line that we want to make sure that we uphold so that everyone's safety is prioritized and so that we are also making sure that everyone is held in this process well so that transformation is possible. And how do we do that? Part of it is disturbing, deeply disturbing this binary between the person who caused harm and the survivor, even though there may be a very clear harm that happened that your process is intervening on, I think the way that we've downloaded that binary into our ideas contributes to uh, disposability culture thinking and also doesn't allow the survivor to be complicated either survivor because right in the beginning i was talking about how both parties are generally people who survived violence in this um, usually in the process we're identifying one person as the one that the process is focusing on as the survivor in that process but i think we have to allow both parties to be complicated like mimi was saying um, some of that comes down to likability, but some of it also comes down to disposability and why we, um, we like a purity culture and a culture of innocence prevents everyone from transforming. And I think the more we can get real with that and the more we can sit with there's no perfect survivor and there's nobody really in our work who isn't one, right? Because this is a survivor-led movement that's focused on ending violence, which means that most people, what's that uh, beautiful, I think it's Danielle Sered who said, no one experiences violence for the first time by committing it, right? So there's a way in which we have to hold us all in this well and removing some of these binaries, I think, is part of how we do that. Well, thank you both again so, so, so much.
you know, if there's anything that you're working on um, that you want to share with our listeners or anything you want to direct them to, you know, please um, take a moment now to do that. Um, the ways that um, people can access me or learn more is one is through the help desk, which is a project of interrupting criminalization, which is here to help people, individuals and organizations that are starting projects to end prisons and police. And so um, if you're starting a project to, to end prisons and police, we want to support you in thinking all that all the way through. And so you can you can find me at the website um, at the interrupting criminalization website um, backslash the help desk. Um, and then also um, there's um, more resources on harm reduction through a book called Saving Our Own Lives, a liberatory practice of harm reduction that talks about community accountability, transformative justice, um, healing justice, disability justice, and all of the ways that harm reduction can be a daily practice of some of these more complex political principles, but also how it's part of our origin story and that so much of liberatory harm reduction um, is how we figured out these tools to begin with and all of the incredible sex workers, drug users, street-based people, um, certainly um, trans people and queer people who were really giving us the building blocks for survival through the invention and architecture involved in the creation of harm reduction. Okay, so Shira, Rachel Kaidor, and I are working um, on a reboot of the Storytelling and Organizing Project, or STOP. Um, STOP is still available right now at stopviolenceeveryday.org, or you could see it at the creative-interventions.org um, website under stories. Um, but we know that there's so many more stories that have come out, so many more stories of success, um, certainly lessons learned. And we're so excited to um, start a podcast that goes back and looks at some of the origin stories that came out of the early and mid 2000s in Chicago, Seattle, Durham, uh, Philadelphia. Um, uh, those are some of the locations that we're starting to record right now. And we are going to continue collecting stories um, from people who have used a community accountability um, or transformative justice. Um, whether they're old stories uh, or new stories, we welcome all. We know that a lot of us, you know, we didn't start this in 2000. This has been going on forever. So um, please go to our website and um, hit the link and just let us know about a story or you can get in touch with um, either of us through email. Um, I think our emails are available uh, in, the, the, in the bios. So we're really excited about launching that and, and just adding to all of the, the great stories of all the work that we've been doing. And when I say we, I mean that across all of y'all who are listening right now. 